Welcome, everyone, to another Voices with Rebecca. This is a especially wonderful episode for me. I'm here with Alexander Feiner. As many of you know him, from he's one of the founding figures of Rebel Wisdom. Um, and this is a way for me to uh, do some small payback for the uh, way that many times Ali was interviewing me so graciously. And now we get to do some role reversal and I get to interview him and get to uh, uh, introduce him to many of you on my channel that may not have met him before and his wonderful work that he's doing. Uh, so Ali, it's just great to see you and it's really wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me, John. It really, I've been looking forward to this for, for a while. And um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to, uh, to an honor to, to be on the other side of, of the uh, conversational <laughs> process. So I thought we'd dive in with your new and wonderful book. So first of all, let's shamelessly promote it. And here it is, <laughs> uh, The Bigger Picture, right? Um, and it's about um, the subtitle, which you might not have been able to see on the screen, was How Psychedelics Can Help Us Make Sense of the World. So obviously sense-making, something that I'm uh, very much interested in, is playing a pivotal role in the book. Um, so Ali, first of all, uh, why this book? Why this book? Why this book now? Yeah, so, you know, traditionally, so, so we look at the psychedelic um, movement in the West, say, starting from perhaps the 19, well, really the 1940s when, when Albert Hoffman discovered LSD, um, until now, it's gone through these phases and the first phase was scientific research uh, that was happening in the 50s and 60s where you know clinicians could order LSD uh, from Sandoz labs and that they'd, they'd get it and they could they were using it to treat um, alcohol alcoholism depression anxiety um, and it was going through kind of a um, you know it had its moment and then it kind of left the lab very famously and became associated with um, and certainly had an impact on the counterculture the, of the 1960s, particularly the late 60s. So became quite associated with um, civil rights movement and anti-war movement. Um, and so the in the early 70s, psychedelics were, as many people might know, uh, banned um, and went from having, um, you know, quite, quite promising medical potential to being put in a class of drugs in most parts of the world where they were seen as having no medical potential. Now, happily, that's reversed. Um, and so most of the narrative now over the last decade or so has been around how psychedelics could be powerful mental health treatments. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more, but it's, we have to caveat that a lot because it's not just the drug. It's, it's the drug in combination with a practice uh, like therapy, for example, or ritual. And so um, that in that process, which you know is very welcome in my view, what's been lost is something that really came out of that countercultural era, which had many many problems, but had had some good sides to it as well. Which was the idea that psychedelics could play some kind of meaningful role in helping us connect to uh, one another, connect to the environment, and connect to different values in new ways. And so that was a kind of um, promise of the psychedelic counterculture that was very influential on me when I got into the field about 15 years ago. So as a, as a university student, a lot of what I was listening to and absorbing was um, from that counterculture. So figures like uh, Ram Das or Terence McKenna, um, Timothy Leary is a very complex character. And as a person, I'm not a huge fan of, of his actions, but he did have some quite interesting ideas as well. So um, I became really, I've always been really fascinated with this question of, okay, well, could psychedelics play a role 
in changing the world, so to speak, to use really lofty language. Um, and I've really gone on a roller coaster of that over the years from thinking, no, it, it's, it's just as prone to lead people into delusion, which is true. And then thinking, yes, no, if they're using the right way, they could play a role. Um, and this book, The Bigger Picture, is, is really my exploration of that question. So in, instead of how to change your mind, which Michael Pollan famously called his book, I, I see it more as kind of how to change society with a whole bunch of caveats as to what that might actually involve and look like and without without presenting psychedelics as magic panaceas which they're they're certainly not right right well thank you for saying that last bit that's important our culture constantly looks in a quixotic fashion for panaceas um so one of the things very interesting about your book is the way it's structured it's unlike many of the books that are coming out in the psychedelic renaissance in fact you participate in the dmt uh, drug study, and then there's passages in the book where you relate your experience from a first-hand account, and then you intersperse that with sort of talking about the cognitive science, and I'll just thank you for citing me so frequently in your book. Uh, that was very kind of you. Um, and, and so, like, I really liked that structure. It gives it the feel like you're moving between the first-person and third-person perspectives, the more interior existential spiritual dimension, and then the more Yes, but what, what's actually happening in cognition, et cetera? Uh, was it deliberate? Or, or, and what was your intent for using that structure? Yeah, it, it was deliberate. And I really also thought about it a lot, and, and especially the percentage of how much would be first person, my experiences on this um, uh, DMT extended state trial, which I'll, I'll talk about in a moment, um, and how much of it is was a kind of a, a bigger picture, <laughs> as the title suggests, sort of sociological look at where we're at right now as a culture and where psychedelics fit in. Um, it's probably about 80-20, I would say, 80% of the, that kind of more sociological lens and perhaps 20% of the more personal lens. And the reason I wanted to, there's a couple of reasons I wanted to include the personal experiences and a couple of anxieties I had around it. The first is that there's a lot of, uh, to use a term that you uh, familiarized me with in a new way, bullshit in the psychedelic <laughs> world. Yeah, yes. <laughs> around people taking their internal subjective states and then making truth claims about reality from that. So that's something I was really careful and was really on my mind. I was like, I've really got to be careful and, and thread that needle carefully because I don't believe that's philosophically sound. At the same time, the psychedelic experience is a, is a qualitative experience first and foremost in terms of, well, you could argue in terms of where the healing is actually happening and where the transformation, the transformation of our sort of perceptual frame is happening. It's, of course, a drug as well. So there are brain changes that happen, but the nature of the experience will change that. Someone could have a very challenging experience that nevertheless really opens something up for them and they have an amazing insight and that really helps them to um, you know, experience new things in life and see things in a new way. Or they could have a, a challenging experience that doesn't lead them there and leads them further into a narrow, um, you know, difficult way of seeing things. So, so there's something about the quality, not just of the experience, but how an individual navigates the experience. And that's really what I wanted to explore because I am, well, I'm very experienced with these uh, substances, even though I have traditionally used them very ritualistically and quite infrequently. Um, the, one of the reasons I was on this uh, trial at Imperial College London that I talk about in the book was because they were looking for healthy volunteers who had a lot of experience because what, we, what, the, what it involved was intravenous injections of dimethyltryptamine or DMT. And if people 
aren't familiar with that, that's a uh, a very powerful um, tryptamine hallucinogen, tryptamine psychedelic, that's found uh, pretty ubiquitously in nature and has been used by indigenous people, particularly in the Amazon, uh, possibly also the Middle East uh, for, for many thousands of years. And so normally the experience, if it's vaporized, which is how people often take DMT, uh, at least NNDMT, which there's two different types I can talk about later, um, that, that experience is very short. It's about 15, 10 to 15 minutes long, very intense, a, a kind of overwhelm of, of content. You know, people re encounter, report encountering seemingly autonomous beings and entities that, uh, that have messages for them. And Rick Strassman, who's one of the original, uh, who, who did a really groundbreaking study on DMT in the 90s, and I would say is actually one of the fathers of the psychedelic renaissance we see now he did actually one of the first studies um he he did a study on dmt and he describes it as a very um he was surprised because when people think of a mystical experience they think of something that um or sometimes they think of something which is ego dissolving yeah, where yeah. someone's individual Same. identity melts yeah. right yeah. yeah and strassman was is himself a Buddhist and a lot of the participants in that first study were Buddhist and they were expecting this kind of Samadhi experience. <laughs> what they got was very different. And in a, in a later book, Strassman argued that it was much more of a prophetic experience. And the way he defines that is the kind of mystical experience that um, people in the Bible report. So if you think about Moses and the burning bush, there's agency and purpose and there's a dialogue with the divine in that experience and so that's that's a really interesting aspect of it but the thing is with that short time frame of 10 minutes or so by the time there's a there's a moment of real ontological shock and just bodily intensity that takes a few minutes to get over and by the time you 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 kind of land uh in this altered state and have your wherewithal it's ending already so strassman proposed uh, along with andrew gallimore uh, another researcher well what would happen if we did extended state dmt where we injected it continuously into the bloodstream because your body metabolizes it very fast because it's endogenous we produce our own dmt somewhere we're not quite sure where and so this is what they did at imperial but they needed to figure out the correct dosage before they gave it to a wider population on a clinical trial and so we were the dose finding study so we were the guinea pigs for the guinea pigs so they needed to dose <laughs> they needed to dose us well f for five dosings one of which was placebo so it's quite a lot of dosings and so in that sense it was quite an innovative thing you know i'm one of only you know 10 or so people in the world who've, who've had that experience so it also felt uh, very interesting sort of phenomenologically and and um philosophically to explore well okay what actually happens in perhaps the most intense psychedelic experience you can have so two questions and take them with whichever order you wish. One is, um, so uh, as you said, there's a lot of bullshit around this. And I've, I've sometimes wondered, it's an open question, if the brevity of the experience and because it's so shocking helps to lend the sense of the really real, the ontonormativity to the experience. Whereas if people could have more time in that space and get more centered and start navigating around, they might come to a more balanced appraisal of the experience. I wanted to know if you found that to be the case. And then secondly, the, this distinction, um, 
uh, we could unpack it a little bit because I think it's very important. And it's been called different things, mystical versus visionary, mystical. I think mystical versus prophetic is uh, really important. And one of the one of the important differences is is the uh, is the phenomenology in the classic Zen Samadhi. You're moving into ineffable, contentless oneness. And 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 what and in many of your descriptions, as you said, there's co- there's amazing content. It's like you're almost in a flow state with that content, super salient, and it's dialogical. You you either you can often speak to beings, or even if the environment is not uh, a sentient being, you have this more interactive dialogical relationship with it. And I'm wondering if there so there's sort of a meta question between the two questions: Is there a relation between that? The fact that it's dialogical, and you can spend more time in it. Might that actually allow to uh, you know to get people to get a more balanced appraisal of its ontological status? Is that a plausible question to ask? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a very interesting one. Uh, maybe I'll do the, the the first one first. Um, so okay, duration with DMT in particular, I'd never actually thought of that. I think it's possible because there is a a sense of wonder and amazement that that there isn't much time to process until after the experience with the regular dosing. Now. I definitely think there's something to this because what I noticed, and not just me, other participants as well, was that that phenomenologically it was very similar when we were injected. The first couple of minutes were really, really disorienting, really sort of overwhelming. And then what's interesting about that particular experience is that you actually need to exercise agency in that altered state to 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 access content. Sometimes, sometimes things come for you, but sometimes you have to make a concerted effort to for want of a better word like if you imagine you're in a video game you got to move around and you got to engage with the environment and do stuff which is you know just fascinating so in that sense you do develop more discernment about what's going on and i think not just the experience itself the experience itself yes there is more of a metacognition uh possible there too um and but it's the reflecting afterwards. And I think that's absolutely key for these experiences. I think what a lot of people, well, what some people might not do is actually reflect on the experience after the experience in a very detailed way and a really kind of discerning way where they go, okay, you know, luckily in the trial, what was particularly helpful is that the team at Imperial an hour after the dosing would go, would have us talk through the dosing in, in the first person in real time without explaining any without going into meaning making or interpretation and it was it was such a great exercise and and it was you know great to have a scientist there who um was then catching us when we would go into meaning making because you know it's you have to be quite focused and not do that because you've had this huge experience and then also they would track our body movement so they might say something like well that's interesting you know I i would say something like oh then i was laughing because i felt this this cosmic joke about this or this and they would say, oh, okay, that, was that perhaps uh, right when you moved your arm? Or was that before or after? And I'd have to go back and think, actually, was that, you know, so you, you start to piece the experience together a bit. Um, and because I was taking diaries of the whole thing, I was also having that other, that kind of deeper reflection throughout. And I think that's probably one of the key things. I think the, dur- the short duration, you could um, probably have a more, a more um, let's say, broader, more nuanced perspective on if you were reflecting on it in a particular way. And I think that's the really, really key thing. Yeah, I could just briefly intervene. So this is what I try to mean, mean when I talk about in, in addition to Leary's set and setting. 
and the, the sacred context, right? Or where you're trying to create a ritual uh, context so that it transfers broadly and deeply into your life and into your psyche. There's also, I talk about a sapiential context where you're trying to set it up and like this was optimal, it sounds like, where you're doing these practices around it that bring in this degree of some metacognitive awareness within and some reflective. Um, I like the fact that you did two. This might be something to think about just making part of the practice where you do, because we do this also when we're doing, when we're testing on the degree to which language interferes with insight problem solving. If you allow people to make all kinds of inferences, it messes up the insight. But if you make them say, no, no, no explaining, no justifying, don't interpret, just describe, then they don't, it doesn't mess up the insight machinery uh, in a powerful way. And so, uh, yeah, so doing both of those, that sort of pure phenomenological and then post like a, like the journaling uh, ref reflection. And so now now to return to it, you, you, you're, you're, you're speculating, reasonably so, that that, so the duration and then those two things, those two components of a sapiential content, sounds like they they influenced your judgment about the realness of the experience. So how, what, what was your judgment about that? Yeah, that, and that was, a, that was a key question that I was sitting on. So firstly, I would say I had a, a, a stance throughout, which was of curiosity and let's say kind of um, agnosticism. And I think that's really important because I, I, well, I mean, frankly, I'm afraid of going down rabbit holes or getting carried away and swept away with, with, um, nonsense. Basically it's, it's a fear I have. I don't want to do that. So I'm, I'm kind of, if anything, what I had to work on was being less kind of, uh, let, like not letting that, that stance get in the way of or of entertaining particular notions around you know phenomena like synchronicity which tend to increase with dmt you know think to actually have an open mind around that at the same time so um so that was um that was key and i suppose <laughs> the realness of the experience so there's experientially it feels realer than real is the term that's often used and that was used by participants in strassman's first study and you know, it got me inquiring into what is that realness? You know, is it that it's relevant, you know, to, to draw on your work a little bit? Is it it's just highly relevant? Yeah, sure, it is. There's also something mysterious and uncanny, but also familiar about the experience. And that's what's very, that's a very striking feeling that you're, you're faced with extreme novelty coupled with a feeling of extreme familiarity. And that was certainly my experience. And that's also an experience other people have reported. That does something to the sense of realness. Yeah. Okay. Let's zero in on this. So this is fantastic. You, uh, the phenomenology you're, you're disclosing is really helpful. Um, because, you know, I think there's, um, I'm working on this notion of autonormativity and how it connects to a much broader uh, uh, sense of rationale and being reasonable. Uh, which is more about you know really refining your sense of realness so that it actually tracks our, uh, the world well, and that's what we should be doing when we're talking about rationality. That should be our primary under, and that means overcoming self-deception, and it means enhancing this. So I like this idea about uh, about extreme novelty, but also familiarity, and because this sort of lines up with, um, and this comes from work from David Schindler. Uh, this notion of, of the beautiful as that combination of not, I, I know it can be a horrifying experience. So I'm, I'm not saying it's a completely beautiful experience. I'm just using this as a way of the beauty and being on the horizon of intelligibility. That's Fisher, that's, that's Schindler. 
And this idea that we find things most real uh, when we're getting a sense of the inexhaustibleness, but also the intelligible. So inexhaustible intelligibility, right, seems to be the thing that we, is the thing that traps. We, we have just new information. It's like, what the hell? And that can be just absurd or horrifying. And if it's just familiar, we don't get, we can get the sense of reality flattening, right? And it's not very real to us. But when we're on that horizon, we get the sense of, this is inexhaustible. So, right, you know, and you get this when people, when it becomes an open world in video games, people get really, it's, uh, they can get that sense of presence. How does that track for you? Does that land and what, 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 what? Definitely does. I mean, the inexhaustibility, I, you know, the video game metaphor is also apt. You know, I'll touch on that because I play a lot of video games and, and a lot of open world games as well. So um, that that sense that there is so much more. This was a very common feeling that I had that I've heard others report. The sense that I'm only scratching the surface of this place that I'm in and this experience. That is one of the defining qualities of, I would say, the DMT experience, but but I'd say psychedelic experiences more broadly, perhaps as well. There's a sense of vastness and this sense of, um, which in its in itself can recontextualize identity, I think. There's something I talk about in the book, you know, that I had this um, very powerful overview effect is, is the closest experience I could describe to one of what happened in one of my dosings where I had this sense of being part of a vast ecosystem, um, which is um i think a very i think probably quite a healthy experience for people to have in the right way you know i found it actually quite quite grounding and useful and it also i think what was supportive about that kind of experience and and speaks to what we were just talking about is that it there's a sense of connectedness that comes with that yeah it's a sense of yeah i'm connected to something much larger than myself which is also unintelligible because if it was larger than me but intelligible, I do think it would it would flatten somewhat. I'd be like, well, okay, that's that's impressively large, but I get it, you know. And the fact of not fully getting it is is the is key. So so well, I like this. Uh, I know, of course, the connecting to something larger than oneself is a defining feature of meaning in life, and that sense of connectedness is at the core of my work, religio. That sense of connectedness being, and that's where the the sort of enhanced relevance of it all. Uh, is was this also something you mentioned, and that's the normative aspect. Like I should be doing this because it's so relevant. And then you, if you get sort of highly normative because it's highly relevant, inexhaustible intelligibility, and like you said, you're on the horizon. It's like I don't know all of it, but you're not. But there's a but there's a sense I, that I could, right, right. So it's not a disempowering experience because that would be horrifying. I take it, and I think sometimes it slides into that for people. But it sounds like in a lot of your experiences, you were able to. And I'm wondering. Also, what do you think about this? That actually your agnostic stance helped you to be on the horizon of wonder on a more reliable basis. Yes, I would, I would say that. And that was the intention with it. Um, and you're absolutely right, because there are people, even on this trial, you know, who have reported this sense of being like a child in a nursery. And that, that, is the, that, that happens, that's a kind of trope of DMT, but in a way where the entities or the experience was um, so far beyond them that they'd felt disempowered. And then they start to feel, feel some fear. Now the agnostic stance, um, it does protect against that because I neither like, you know, let's say if I had the experience of being um, in a nursery and entities, uh, you know, 
saying I was small and insignificant, um, I would, you know, from an agnostic stance, I'm not necessarily taking that on board in a personal way or saying that that's a truth statement that I have to adopt. I'm, I'm observing, you know, and obviously I practice mindfulness, which helps tremendously with this, which I think is a core skill set for anyone in, in altered states. Um, so, you know, I'm observing that experience and thinking, huh, fascinating. Like, I mean, that's usually what I was thinking. I was thinking, what, like, what is going on here? That, and that, that is really protective because then there's no, you know, what I've noticed is that if people have an expectation or they have a, a, a prior ontology that they need to see fulfilled in some way they usually run into trouble because the experience does not give you that the experience gives you a huge variety of different things and you'll get reports of people you've got wildly different reports of what people think the nature of reality is after these experiences some are consistent panpsychism is a little bit more consistent than than others um some sense of of kind of consciousness being primary that's pretty that there is research on that but also you get some out there stuff, you know, you get people thinking everything was made by, they, I encountered a reptilian alien that told me that, uh, everything was, uh, spawned by them 10,000 years ago. And there's this great, um, anecdote I relate in the book, uh, from Jer, uh, it's not Jeremy Narby. It's, um, Jeremy Narby relates the, the story, um, of an anthropologist who's in the, in the jungle in the seventies, uh, researching ayahuasca. And he encounters these, um, two giant uh, snake, like dragon-like entities that come out of nowhere in his visions. And they say they're the gods of the universe and everyone needs to bow before them. And they created it. They created everything. And he's terrified. And the next day he goes to the shaman and he says, oh my God, I had this experience. And these, these dragons came out and the shaman's listening to, okay, what do they look like? Okay, what, uh, what color were their scales? Uh-huh, uh-huh. And he's like, oh, wait a minute. Did they say that they were the gods of the universe? And he was like, yeah, yeah, that's what they said. He's like, nah, nah, they're full of crap. They're not the gods of the universe. <laughs> and I just love that in cultures that have this, um, you know, ph- phenomenological experiences that have tracked over time, they also have a sense that you can't believe everything that you're told in these experiences. You have to go in with some discernment. And that's absolutely key. So I, I like that because um, um, one of the things I've often wondered is, especially because it's in, we'll touch on this a little bit more, I hope about you know how this is much more dialogical uh, uh like you say it's a, like a video game you're interactive you're often talking to other beings how that sense of enhanced realness that we were talking about before if it's not and i thank you by the way for recommending mindfulness training before doing all of this uh, i have also made that recommendation repeatedly but the idea that you know that 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 ontonormativity that really realness of the world transfers it bleeds into giving authority to the figures that you're talking to, mm-hmm. and so and it, and so that brings up uh, you know the notion that you mentioned. Um, I forgot the researcher who uh, it's a guy who started doing some of the original work on DMT, but on, in his second book, he talked about uh, the way of thinking of this as like the biblical prophecy, right? Now the thing about prophecy is it actually is spoken that way, the way you're sort of hesitant about right? Which is the word of the Lord came to me and I say unto you, you must, right? And, right? Prophecy isn't about telling the future. It's about sort of uh, giving, the God, giving the God's eye point of view about what's going on now so people wake up uh, to deeper patterns. And so there's a knife edge here that I, uh, the razor's edge uh, at Somerset Mall that you're walking on, which is <clears throat> you want what hopefully, because I, um, I would, and I think I know you, 
you want there to be transfer from these experiences. You want them that you want them to be proper rituals. You want them to transfer broadly and deeply into your life and to you know and to percolate deeply into the psyche and align it in powerful ways, right? And and that would be prophetic. You'd see more deeply into the world and how it more deeply resonates into you. Is that fair? Just the first part. Yeah. Okay. That's fair. Right. Definitely. But on the yeah. other hand, you don't want to believe everything you're told by the gods in this world because the hi the hyperspace elves or the space aliens or the the, the green Smurfs. Uh, when telling you that the world was made 3,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, or the world was, it, this world is actually the shadow of another. There's, like you said, the ontologies are like bleh, all over the place. Um, and, and so, do you see what I'm saying? Your agnosticism is, is right. It, 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 so, so you're trying to dampen down being too prophetic, but you don't want to dampen it down so it's not prophetic at all. Do, do you see that? Absolutely. No, yeah, yeah. that's it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And I think, you know, your your concept that of, of the, the knowing when to zoom in and zoom out. Right. Yeah. Cognitively, yeah. That, that was tremendously helpful, right. which, I, which I, I mentioned in the book, but I also used practically during it. So you got a, a, <laughs> a live test subject of, of some cognitive <laughs> science ideas. But that, that that is a very important part of it because and this is this is research my wife Ashley Murphy Biner is is doing around this idea in the psychedelic world that you must always lean into what's coming up, that that everything that's coming up you need to lean into it and and accept it and embrace it. Now often that is helpful, but what they miss out is well no though sometimes you need to zoom out yes. and you need to take a step back yeah and and that's 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 equally important. So so what I would say I mean for me and this is an argument I make. Um, in the book, in fact, I say one of the core arguments I make in the book is that it's it's not necessarily the insights we gain on psychedelics that are useful for then applying to the world we live in, although there may be also useful insights. It's actually the existential stance and the attitudes and the practices. It's basically the same practices and attitudes that help us navigate a psychedelic experience can help us navigate an increasingly complex world, which is also increasingly full of of contradictory symbolic meaning and religious energies and intensity. So it's actually a psychedelic approach to problem solving. And, and you know, one of the things psychedelics do very well, I think, is give us a lived experience of navigating complexity, uh, usually our own complexity, but also the complexity of an environment. You know, there's also, yeah, that there's, there's people who, you know, work in, say, ecology or computer science who, who use lower doses of psychedelics to get a picture of the whole system, get a, you know, so that they can solve problems or that they can zoom out and say, ah, OK, this is how things interconnect. So I think that's the real value. And I think we have to be really careful with um, get th that more prophetic energy of, OK, I've come back from the mountaintop and <laughs> I'm here to say this because um yeah, it's it's probably not true. <laughs> and um, and, you know, there's something um, I, I reference a study in the book by Leo Rosman, who is a, a researcher at Imperial College. And he's done this fascinating or is in still in the process of doing this fascinating study with Israelis and Palestinians who drink ayahuasca together you know, in ayahuasca. The the active ingredient is, is DMT. And uh, the first part of that study has already been published, so people can check it out. Um, but, you know, he points out that what's what's fascinating about having an experience which is prophetic in the sense that it involves agency is that it can also be very political. 
And that's something that, of course, happened in the 60s, the combination of these experiences with political ideas. And there's, you know, that's something I kind of uh, explore in one of the chapters of the book a lot because I find it very important and fascinating because on the one hand, we sometimes do need a kind of political energy to move things forward and change structures. But at the same time, it's, it's, I told Lior when he told me about the study, I was like, I feel like you've just pulled out a stick of dynamite because it's incredible at the same time, the combination of psychedelics and politics is quite dangerous, you know, uh, in, in a lot of ways. So it's it's a very, it's a really interesting area, I think. Okay, well, so first of all, um, thank you for saying that. It provides some powerful corroboration to an argument I made about higher states. Um, and the uh, the, uh, the experiment we ran in uh, uh, my lab where it's not the content of a mystical experience that is responsible for um, the tr the transformations of people. Uh, uh, so it, most of the uh, most of the heavy lifting is being done by the insight machinery, the the procedural and especially perspectival and sometimes what is transformative participatory machinery. And the propositional stuff is wanky and goes all over the place. And right, and so uh, that's why I try and say if you look for knowledge from these experiences, you're going to get messed up. If you look for wisdom which is what you're pointing to, an ability to or orient and navigate complexity in the real world, then I think these experiences can be tremendously valuable. Um, now, what that, that brings to mind, though, is, you know, uh, one of the ways of affording insight, we know this from Stefan and Dixon, right, and some of the work I do is you, you, you dump some noise into the system, right? You, 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 uh, right? You're showing an insight problem and people like, yeah, get it, and you run some static through it or you shake the picture, and you put a bit of en entropy in the brain, and you 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 get some insight, right? Um, and, and then you know you've got Carhar Harris and Woodward and other people saying, well, you know, it's probably like what we have to do in machine learning because when machine learning, these machines are getting so powerful in any data sample, they overfit to the data, right? And that and so so much so that that in, they 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 inappropriately they transfer, they make conclusions. It's like saying it. If, if you and I asked, is Rebel Wisdom one of the great all-time channels? Well, yeah, we agree. Well, look, everybody thinks that. That's a sampling bias, right? Right? And that's overfitting to the data. And of course, you can underfit, and uh, that gets into relevance realization problems. But the thing I'm trying to say is we throw noise into the system to free the system from overfitting, opening it up, affording insight, letting it explore more of the intelligibility space. You know, Carhart Harris uh, has a thesis that psychedelics are doing something similar than the, the, what we have to do in machine in machine learning. What you do is you throw in noise, you turn off half the network at times. Um, and, and I know you're exploring ideas like that. And the thing about that that I find powerful, so I'm, I'm giving a bit of an argument, but right, is the content of noise is exactly not where it is valuable. Because if you look for content in the noise, you're, you're finding illusions. That's like the classic experience where you, you give people, you know, jarbled sounds and they, I don't know, and then you, you read a sentence to them and then they hear the jarbled sound as that sentence, right? Those classic kinds of experiments, right? And so, but it's, so it's not the content, it's the way it loosens the mind, opens it up, that entropic stuff uh, going on. Psychedelics are in some ways shutting off large areas of the brain, especially like the default mode network. So what do you think about all of that? I know that was a lot. I was trying to put it to you, but like it seems like the, the, the phenomenology that we've been discussing at length actually maps on to some much more uh, functional explanations. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? What's coming to? I mean, firstly, I think there's there's a lot of um, 
I, I think there's a lot of signal in that that argument and that possibility. And, in, you know, I'm thinking also um, Card Harris uh, has also, um, I think, suggested that there's something around um, strain on the organism, which which leads to neuroplasticity. So it's like kind of pressure on an organism and psychedelics are, are kind of potentially doing the same thing so that the mechanism for neuroplasticity is that and I, I've off that that has resonated with me just in terms of my own experience and what I've observed in others, right? Because the, these are difficult, very often they are challenging experiences and it's the challenging aspects of them dealt with in a particular way that are most transformative. It's actually overcoming and going through like, you know, for me, in many of my experiences, um, uh, I will be wrestling with something. And I know you've talked about this with um, what was this, uh, Socrates or no, Plato was a wrestler. Was it Socrates? Yeah, yeah. So so, you know, that 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 Plato's a wrestler. Yeah. So so that resonates because there is this sense of chewing something and wrestling it. And in the in the psychedelic therapy manuals and literature there's this kind of um again something my wife is is researching at the moment there's this you know deep question about how much do you let people wrestle before you give them support you know and that's something that you know i run um along with natasha pelgrim colleague uh, we run uh, legal retreats in the netherlands with psilocybin which is legal there for for healthy you know healthy volunteers basically healthy participants and you know that's a question that we um we consider as well it's like how you know how much resourcing do you give someone how much support do you give them and how much do you let them do it you know it's a, it's kind of very contextual but but on that point as well the other thing that is absolutely core to what we're trying to teach people really what we're trying to do is give people the skill set and the kind of phenomenological toolkit to navigate the experience well and that actually requires a lot of preparation there's a lot of talk in the psychedelic world about the importance of integration. So how you reflect on and then integrate your experiences, that is extremely important. But what isn't spoken about that much, and that's that's also something I, I touch on in the book because I think it's undervalued, is is good preparation. Because the preparation will give you tools like, you know, coming back to your breath, mindfulness tools, tools of discernment and curiosity um, that will help you in the experience to go deeper. And one of those tools, you know, th this speaks to what you were talking about before, because we're in a room with, with say, 10 or 12 participants and everyone is, you know, we're, we're effectively keeping the energy um, in, the, in the right place so that everyone can be simultaneously in their own space, but feel safe and held and also supported if they need to be. So it's actually a very, very complex uh, task, you know, as a, as a counselor and, and a facilitator. One of the things that is really common is that people will say open their eyes and look at another person who's you know in their own process and become convinced that they know what's going on with that person and you'll hear it afterwards in the reflection it's like you know you were i just knew you were crying and i could just feel you really letting go of all this grief and we'll have to be like mm, that was you you had the experience of the person having grief and the person very often will be like oh no that's not what was going on at all and so there's something very very distinct that's a real good learning opportunity where it's like the content that you're experiencing in that moment is tricky and you have to really navigate it well because what you're actually having is an experience that seems like it's about the other but it's actually about you and the skill set the real skill is going i'm right now having an experience of thinking that person is experiencing grief what does that experience tell me about me in this moment 
right? So there's a right. lot of metacognitive skill yeah. required to do these experiences as well. And people do tend to learn those the, the more they practice with, with good prep and integration. So uh, three things come up for me. The first is uh, Israel means to wrestle with God. And of course, that's one of the earliest of the prophetic things we have um, in the Old Testament. Um, and then, uh, so I'm doing work with uh, Michelle Ferrari, Jennifer Stiller, Jensung Kim on awe. And we're getting some pretty convincing evidence. And he's also done some, Jensung has done some work with Brian Ostefan. Awe doesn't increase like... Um, your capacity for insight all makes you more confident of the insights you might be having. And of course, that is a double-edged sword. What it does is, right, it sort of empowers you if you have an insight to carry it into your life. But people can, and this goes back to the, the problem you are talking about before, people can misconstrue that confidence with realness. Uh, and so I've been proposing that we need to teach people the virtue of reverence, which is how to properly uh, relate to awe, let it inspire you with confidence, but let not make. And but you have to you have to couple that to deep epistemic humility, and like what you're talking about here, the cultivation of uh, epistemic virtue. You don't just run with your awe because that's not what the awe is doing uh, for you. Now, the third thing that comes out for this is the, and this goes to a broader thing you're doing in the book, um, which is you know, you're addressing, you call it the big crisis. You also call it the meta crisis. Uh, um, and, you know, and I, I think the argument for calling it the meta crisis rather than the poly crisis is, is a very good one. Um, so I tend to use that term. Uh, that's not, non-punch hangs on that. But this idea, you know, that we're wrestling with, um, well, I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be in the UK in the end of September. I'm going to record a four-hour session with Daniel Schmachtenberger and Ian McGilchrist. And I propose to them that the, the core of our topic should be that the sacred is trying to be reborn in our world. Um, and that's what, we're, that's what we're wrestling with. And I got that sense in your book too, and the, even the bigger picture, right? And so um, there's this idea in the book um, which I find really tasty, that within an ecology of practices and properly set within setting and setting and sacredness and a sapiential uh, framework, right, the psychedelics could contribute to that needed rebirthing of religio of connectedness to sacredness and a new, I think, meaning understanding of sacredness. And I think that's fair to say that's a theme in your book. Um, and I'd like to, but I'd like to give you the opportunity to like unpack that, unfold that a little bit more, right now, please. Yeah, it, and and it it may well also be the most significant contribution psychedelics could make to, to sort of finding a way through the meaning crisis and um yeah to, to the revival of the sacred. So <clears throat> you know it's it's interesting. This has been a part of psychedelics reliably elicit mystical type experiences as they're called um, in the literature, and in fact, especially in the U.S. Uh, researchers is a bit different in Europe they attribute that mystical experience that sense of a deep connection to something beyond ourselves as the one of if not the core uh, factor in healing depression or anxiety or helping with you know, quitting smoking or alcoholism that that's the really profound uh, shift in our frame so 
so that's that's a big part of the psychedelic experience now the what i'm really interested in is okay but what conception of the sacred you know um in in sociology and particularly in the the tradition of durkheim you know the idea is that the sacred is everywhere in society we always make something sacred and some things profane um and and i th- and i kind of make the argument that I, I think you've made as well which is that we we make we flip them around too much in, in culture we make profane things sacred and sacred things profane right so we you know we're worshiping worshiping money worshiping um uh, certain types of achievement over things that are profound and intangible um and deeply human right so so the question is how can we have these individual experiences of encountering the sacred in some way fairly reliably the psychedelics done in the right way how do we then um feed that back into our lives in a meaningful way and the point i came to as i really wrestle with that question is that i think fundamentally and not everyone will agree with this but i think one of the the to use a schmachtenberger phrase generator functions of of the crisis we're in is that we have a cultural story about what reality is that that is incredibly limited and narrow um, and effectively only allows us to see matter as real. Psychedelics do move people fairly reliably toward a more panpsychist perspective. Um, not always. Uh, staunch materialists generally say staunch materialists. Uh, people who are a little bit open-minded will tend to move to seeing a con- to a consciousness-first perspective. I think that's incredibly promising because I think fundamentally, if we allow consciousness into the conversation about what is real uh, and, you know, away from the situation we have now where effectively it's, you know, we have like emergentism where it's like, it's kind of like, it's a byproduct and it's not really real. It's, you, you feel like a real person, but you're not really real, you know? And I actually, I, I quote some of your, um, uh, one of the awakening from the meaning crisis episodes around where you're talking about sort of the, the origins of this later in the book, because I then really dive into panpsychism and idealism and looking at, well, what are the implications of a widely adopted, more panpsychist worldview and I think they're 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 potentially quite profound. Um, and one of the things it does is orient us toward quality over quantity as a value. And this is um, Pierce, Robert Piercig's argument in Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, which I sort of rediscovered because I was like, I kind of kind of got to this point. I was like, oh my god, it's all about quality. And I was like, wait a minute, I've heard someone say that before. <laughs> it's like Piercing. So I kind of you know went back to his metaphysics of quality and I found that as a really important starting point. And, you know, even when I spoke to Michael Pollan for the book, uh, he, you know, I think Pollan is a fairly scientific materialist thinker overall. Um, and he said, you know, we were talking about these recent results from Johns Hopkins, which said that people who take psychedelics at a very statistically significant level attribute agency to things in the world, whether that's rocks or trees and even you know, cans of cans of Coca-Cola, right? Less so, but more so into nature. And he was saying, hey, look, if, you know, animism is widespread in some form, and we're, we're probably not going to go back to some kind of traditional style animism, but he was saying, if we pretended to be animist, that might even be better for the way we approach the environment, each other, the natural world, etc. And so I found that quite striking because, you know, you know, even if we don't fully adopt the ontological assumptions of, say, panpsychism or idealism, we can still adopt some of the behaviors and perspectives that come from them, and that could be very meaningful. And also, 
there's something about the nature connection element because you know that's i've often wondered okay if there had to be a world religion that filled the gap in the meaning crisis um and it wasn't an existing religion uh, that would what 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 might be the least destructive and i thought well nature worship is it got a pretty good bet for that as opposed to some you know well i think we'll see an ai religion in the next few years as well so um but yeah so that's kind of that's why i think it's very important i think it's i think it goes right to the heart of what we believe is real um i think that's where the psychedelics have the most impact well thank you that was really so that's very rich so you're gonna have to allow me a fairly complex reply then and then we can keep going um so uh first of all um i i i appreciate your caution because we we developed an argument together earlier that it's not so much the propositional content but the you know uh the cultivation of wisdom that is what we should be paying attention to I, and i want to i wanted to pick up on a proposal i've made um that um sacred is when we are connected to the inexhaustible intelligible in a way that affords reciprocal opening which you mentioned in the book as opposed Reciprocal narrowing, Mark Lewis's addiction, we lose agency, the world flattens, it becomes imprisonment, and, and reciprocal opening, it opens up. And our two, this is Plato's argument, our two meta desires are being met. We are being integrated into inner peace. We're getting deeper and deeper in contact with reality. And the sacred is that which satisfies those meta desires while disclosing more and more within and without in a coordinated manner. So a functional a phenomenological account rather than trying to give an, a, a final ontological account. And then the, the idea about that is that gets up to this the most highest levels. You know, you, you know, Friston's work in predictive processing, it gets up to the level of the hyper priors and really uh, opens them up and changes them. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about wisdom. So just because I know you invoked the reciprocal opening in the book. So I just wanted to put that out there as a way of bringing it in, talking about the sacred. And then yeah, you mentioned the panpsychism, uh, and of course, uh, and the uh, and I'm, I'm glad you distinguish panpsychism from idealism. Uh, Bernardo Castrop will be very uh, appreciative of you doing that because they're very different positions. I've been making another argument, and I don't know how much you're aware of some of my more recent work, uh, but I've been making the argument that um, the philosophical tradition that actually takes a look at, um, like, really tries to get at the nature of reality from intelligibility is the whole Platonic and the Neoplatonic tradition. And that Neoplatonism actually is the spiritual grammar of the West. It's on it's on a par uh, for the West of what Zen is to the East, right? It's this huge integrative thing. And and Neoplatonism, uh, I've argued, um, is is actually better than panpsychism and um, absolute idealism for being able to integrate the spiritual and the scientific worldviews. And also, they have a long-standing tradition of uh, dealing with altered states of consciousness and integrating them into a coherent uh, worldview. So I, I'm not going to argue for that because I would have you at a disadvantage here, but I, I, I'm, I'm going to recommend that you take a look, perhaps just at some of the recent work I've done around, and because there is this revival of Neoplatonism happening right now. And what's interesting about it is Neoplatonism has this amazing history of being able to enter into reciprocal reconstruction with Christianity, you get people like Eckhart and Nicholas of Cusa. With Islam, you get Sufism. With, Juda with Judaism, you get Kabbalah. Uh, it looks like there's interactions along the Silk Road with Vedanta, with Buddhism, um, but also with science at the beginning of the scientific revolution and at the beginning of the Einsteinian revolution. So it's got a really good track record, too. 
that recommends it uh, very powerfully. And it, it comes to a very similar conclusion to the one that I just proposed to you. James Filler in his book on Heidegger Neoplatonism and the Ground of Being argues that this notion, right, of, you know, of really trying to understand in what intelligibility really is ontologically and making it primary um, really gives you a, a very powerful way uh, 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 of um, getting an ultimate ontology that is nevertheless uh, consistent and be rendered consistent with a scientific worldview. So I'm just making an argument and a recommendation to you on the basis of that argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm fast. I mean, I have, I, we, um, I have tracked a little bit the, this argument. We had a conversation about it for a piece I put out on my Substack um, when you released um, the, the series on Socrates. And um, I am intrigued, I have to say, because I'm not too far. <laughs> I'm not a diehard panpsychist. I kind of lean towards pan. I have panpsychist leanings. And it's funny you mentioned about Castro because I said, um, I, I interviewed Castro for the book and then I saw him at a conference. And I was like, oh, Bernardo, I, um, this is, you know, I was like, I've got you in the book with um, uh, t two other philosophers. He was like, but they're panpsychists. I was like, yes, I know. And I'm actually, <laughs> I'm talking about the difference between idealists and panpsychists. He was like, so um, yeah, I I important distinction. But, you know, in a sense, what, what I'm most interested in is what is a framework and model that will actually work at scale? You know, and I think, you know, something with a track record is, is really um, fits that bill. Also, most people, you know, it also has to be intelligible to people through different lenses. Whereas, you know, it took me weeks to get to the bottom of the differences between panpsychism and idealism for my book. And I was already, you know, I studied philosophy, <laughs> already had some kind of backing in it. So it's, it's a level of complexity. And so I think it's, um, yeah, I, I think I'm open to whatever, whatever works really. Yeah. Well, and that the other advantage, of course, is the Neoplatonic tradition uh, weds all of these transformative experiences to a profound reflection on wisdom and what wisdom is and how it can be cultivated. That's why I compare it. It's it's very much like Zen uh, to that to that level. Um, so, uh, do you think? Uh, and I agree with you, by the way. Um, I don't know if you know. I've got. I did a video essay on the uh, looming advent of AGI. And then I've got a popular book out, a book designed to be sort of stepped down, not dumbed down, but stepped down for more popular audience around this called Mentoring the Machines. And I definitely think that sort of uh, religions around AI are coming for sure. Um, uh, in fact, they're already happening. I get I get emailed all the time about people who, they don't realize it, but the, they, they've taken up a religious stance and attitude towards even chat GPT-4, which is like, um, yeah. So... But this goes to the bigger the the, the bigger thing, because you know you talk about the dark side in the book too, right? And the thing around uh, when I in the book, you know, so in my work around, you know, sacredness, and then in the the stuff about the AI, you know, in the work I've done with Jordan Hall and other people, right? There's Molochian forces at work. Uh, I think some of your earlier work was on psychedelic capitalism or capitalistic psychedelic. Uh, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And exactly. so there's, yeah. there's a lot, I mean, being able to manipulate people and make things salient, open them up to bullshit. I mean, it, it makes them more malleable, blah, 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 blah. And you already said there was, a, you know, and there was a lot of abuse in the counterculture because of the way psychedelics open people up, right? Cult formations and all kinds of bad stuff, Right. Um, so can you talk a little bit now about the dark side? 
Yeah, and this is a, I devote a whole chapter to this because it's so important, and because also because you know, as a as a preface to that, you know, I think psychedelics are so powerful because they are so dangerous in some ways, or at least their danger really it correlates. It goes hand in hand, um, and so yeah, the darkness has many facets. It has the one facet of the individual level of that these experiences can be really dangerous and can really lead to permanent psychological damage you know that's just the reality of it um and so that is being swept under the rug in the press releases of labs around the world because it's an inconvenient truth right now and the attitude is let's get this over the line however we can and we'll deal with all the problems later which i think is a fundamentally bad attitude to have in life or or culture it just never works right so um, you know, like the Tao Te Ching talks about that, you know, deal with the problem when it's here right now and small, not later when it's bigger. So that bothers me a lot. Um, and there are, you know, there are groups, you know, Jules Evans, Ed Prideaux, a few journalists and, and researchers really focusing on, um, you know, Jules runs the Challenging Psychedelic Experiences Project. We're really trying to do, you know, they're doing proper research on, okay, well, what are these experiences that people are having? And that's, that's really important. So there's that side of it. Uh, there's also the side of it of the market forces capturing psychedelics and we saw this with um mindfulness and yoga uh you know we we have you you will always have deep profound expressions of these practices like you know vipassana or you know or different types of zen and you know lots of different traditions have these deep practices and then you have what happens when the dominant culture or, or let's let's say capitalism and the incentive structures of capitalism take it over um, commoditize it and then sell it back because the way it is sold back will never be um, truly transformative in the sense that it could lead to sy systemic change because the system is now co-opting it and it's not like any individual within the system has some kind of grand master plan in fact ironically a lot of the people who work in psychedelic pharma companies have the absolute best intentions and are wrestling with the fact that they're up against these, these profit motives um, and so they're looking at what what often happened with the psychedelic there was a big uh, gold rush in about 2020 with lots of money coming into the space and what a lot of people were ignoring and this is a this is a problem with a certain type of new age spiritual or individualized spirituality it was like yeah but actually if people are coming from the right place the right things will happen it's like no that's not true systems are more powerful than people and they could be the most well-intentioned people in the world so there was this amazing um short story called we will call it pala which came out around then which was a story of a young woman who has uh you know her own healing journey with lsd and then decides to open a clinic and the story tracks her journey from having the best intentions to having to then cut corners because her investors you know another clinic opens up and her investors say well no three days of integration just do one day that you know they're doing two days we'll do one day so you see this race to the bottom scenario happening and that that happens with psychedelics what's um What's different about psychedelics is that they are a drug. And so they fit into the business model of pharmaceutical companies in a way that mindfulness or yoga never did, right? Or even breath work. So the, the reality of it is quite different. Now, on the plus side, since that 2020 boom, now in you know, 2023, half of the companies have gone bust. There's half the amount of money in the space that there was before which for some is a bad thing for me and a few others we're thrilled because a we said it would happen because they were trying to monetize 
these experience they were trying to monetize what they thought was a drug but actually it's a healing experience which includes a whole lot more than the drug and they had no idea a lot of them came from the cannabis space and they came with a lot of money so i'm thrilled that the it's leveled out because what's also happened is that hopefully many of the people remaining um have a more nuanced view on on what this is you know and my my friend ben sessa uh, who's a psychiatrist here in the uk and is you know one of the first you know people pushing the psychedelic wagon forward in the uk you know he said like there's not really that much money to be made in psychedelics ultimately compared to say uh you know a, a diabetes drug whatever it might be you know you need proper therapy it takes time you would ideally need two therapists for eight hours a session and then all the integration etc and you know in um there's a psychiatrist in switzerland called peter gasser who's able to do legal psychedelic treatment with his patients on health insurance in switzerland as well um you know i organized co-organized this conference breaking convention um the largest one on, on psychedelics in europe and he was speaking there and he said um he was like you know we we just do a lot of free work because the insurance doesn't cover what's actually required to give people the safe beneficial experience so they do you know they get paid some money but they end up doing it for the love you know that's that's how it, the reality of it is and i think there are ways that could be somewhat profitable but i think the reality is now hitting where they're realizing okay it's not that profitable now that doesn't mean we're out of the woods in terms of the dangers of commodification because of course places like california are decriminalizing and then the next thing will be commodifying to the general public hey you know you're feeling a little bit blue take some lsd so that's a huge concern as well and that we need to kind of uh guard against that Hopefully some of the work we're doing, you're doing and I'm doing and we're doing here together will help uh, give people an alternative framing. Um, so I wanted to return back to something uh, uh, which is the, the dialogical character of these experiences and how they're very different from samadhi or moksha or you know many sort of uh, classic experiences of enlightenment or and you and I both are, are heavily invested in dialogical practices as a way of trying to uh, train people uh, with, you know, and, and, and setting that those dialogical practices into, you know, a prominent place within an ecology of practices. And we've had discussions about this. And then um, again, you touch on that connection too in the book. And I, I thought it would be good for people to hear because I, I, I'm wondering if, you know, in addition to you know the sad and the setting and this uh, and and the sacred and the sapiential or perhaps as part of the sacred and the sapiential we try to you know can can we get the inner and the outer dialogos to more properly resonate and talk with each other and could psychedelics afford that or is is it that the experiences are too intense and idiosyncratic that we can't get a a a a, a, a intended and healthy bleed between inner and outer dialogos or do you think that's a possibility and should we be considering it? What do you think about that? Yeah, this I love this question. This is right at the edge of my my thinking and uh, and plans actually for the future. So, you know, I am um, my main training in uh, dialogical practices is, is from the diamond approach. So the, the practice of inquiry, although I also really do enjoy circling and other similar practices. And I, um, you know. Yes, the, the DMT experience in particular but is, is very dialogical, but so is, in for me, and you know, not everyone, but for me, all psychedelic experiences have this, that quality of, of being in a, in a deep dialogue with uh, whatever, 
aspect of myself. Who knows? Maybe maybe something beyond me. And so it's always been my experience in every every one. And some people have that same same thing. Other people interpret the experience differently. But for me, that's that's always been how I learn in in some way, right? And you can um, transform. And so um, the so the question is, can we bring, can we combine this this yeah like you said the the inner dialogus with the outer? And I think what one thing I'm really interested one thing I'm working on right now is I'm I want to do a um, a process design a process focused on helping people engage with complex problems in their particular field whatever it might be on on dose on psilocybin so doing it in Holland um, and I'm just in the process of of figuring that out and seeing okay well as part of that process that's a kind of problem solving process can we actually get better at problem solving but a big part of what I'm looking at in the protocol is being an inquiry during the experience, during the acute experience. Now, the first thing I'm thinking of is uh, that the dose has to be lower, quite a bit lower than it might be for when you're just in your own world. Um, I've had my own experiences of of um, doing inquiry with psilocybin, and it was very profound. It was very, very profound. It really was probably the deepest experience, one of the deepest experiences I've had. And so I think there's much to be gained from from that. And you know, there's this model of psychedelic therapy that comes from America primarily, which is high doses to elicit that mystical experience, which is then seen as the healing thing. And then through therapy, that's then integrated. And that sure, that, that can work really well. In Europe, there's more of a focus on what's called psycholytic therapy, which is where the therapist continues the therapy with the patient as they're on the under the acute effects of the drug. Um, and I believe the MDMA therapy that, that MAPS do in the U.S. is a little bit more that kind of psycholytic style, right? And so that's kind of, um, you know, there's a, there's a real precedent for it. And I think it can absolutely be done. And I think people need training in advance in those practices. Like I would never do it. What would happen, I would almost guarantee, if someone's never done circling or dialogue practice and they don't have that, that skill set, which I think can be developed in reasonable time, then they're likely going to be uh, too distracted. It's going to be too difficult for them to to simul. You got to rub your belly and pat your head at the same time. You got to simultaneously feel what you're feeling and communicate and connect with the other and listen. It's a lot to ask. And the other thing is that you need what um, Frederica Meckel, who's a researcher psychedelic researcher, uh, also in Switzerland, she calls state competence, right? You need to actually know how to navigate psilocybin. You have to have done it a few times before. You have to have some sense of, okay, this is normal. Sometimes you feel like this, some, you know, because also every drug is different and psilocybin can, can very much, some, some content will be coming up and then it can suddenly switch and it goes, oh, but now look at this. So you, <laughs> you need to kind of be able to work with that. However, all that considered, I think it's absolutely fascinating as an area to explore because it could actually, what I'm really interested in is, could we, could someone come in with a complex problem that they're facing? Let's say they're, uh, they work for Greenpeace or something and they're like, well, we're trying to figure out how we're going to get this, you know, this uh, protection for this lake. But no one can because it's all these different government bodies, all these different things. Is there a way where there's a protocol that could reasonably get them towards at least a better place they could have gotten brainstorming on a whiteboard? Well, um, I'm just gonna if if it if 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 it helps I, I like um, if I could be of any help in that dimension of your work uh, count me in count me in um, 
I mean, uh, for me, uh, and I won't say when, uh, uh, you know, but the very first time, in fact, I did uh, psilocybin magic mushrooms, um, and, you know, and how, about how Huxley talks about the isness. And I was with somebody who, uh, and, uh, you know, and I'd done it up and I did Tai Chi on one. And so I had an, because uh, part of why I did it is I wanted to, I wanted to give myself a phenomenological touchstone. What would it be like to do Tai Chi where, and I, you're you're, lot, you're much less egocentric. You're much more open to flow, and and I, I remembered it, and so I used that as a touchstone in my training, so I could, could train myself to get there without. And I think that's one thing we should uh, think about too, about the pedagogical like things like that, creating you know creating phenomenological touchstones in the experience that people can use as benchmarks that they can work towards outside of being on the drug, and that's a powerful way of bringing about bringing about transfer. But back to the thing. And then the other thing is, uh, we were both highly interested in Heidegger. We were both having this shared intense isness experience. And I, we, I had some of the best, and I remember them. And I remember even noting at the time that I, you know, I thought you're supposed to be sort of irrational when you're on, you know, when you're high. But some of them, and, and I remembered them. So I, I, when, I went, when I was no longer high, I was able to evaluate them. And yet these were really profoundly, you know, philosophically astute reflections on Heidegger's reflection on being, and then there was some. There was this deep resonance between the inter, the internal dialogue and the external dialogue going on. So I I can, I, I know what that's like. And then I I think there might be something between these two. So just one more minute. So you get the idea of creating a phenomenological touchstone, right? And then you can practice towards it. What if we? And then I had an experience like this in dialogical. Why did we use the experiences to create dialogical touchstones that people can then work towards while they're in their dialogical practices outside of the experience as a way of trying to take it into a really, really deep thing? I love that. I love that. Can you give an example of what a dialogical touchstone might be? Well, so, uh, so you, you know, so when you're getting into dialectic, into dialogos, you get to, you, 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 like people... There's sort of stages they get at, and they, they, it, and you can describe the phenomenology in terms of senses of intimacy. So very, very rapidly, people get interpersonal intimacy, and 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 that's good. And and, it, and you know, and, and 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 a lot of people, that's it. That's where they stay. Some people start to get an experience of the we space, the geist, the logos, the third that takes on a life of its own. And then, they, and what they can do is they can move to a sense of intimacy with that, right? And then there's a third possibility is people can move through those two. They can find a through line through them, the, the interpersonal intimacy, the intimacy with the logos, and they can find an intimacy through that to the intimacy to the ground of being itself, right? And you see what I'm saying? We could give people phenomenological touchstones about these two deeper kinds of intimacy, especially the third, and, and that could help them feel and find their way to those deeper kinds of intimacy while they're doing the dialogical practice. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Ali, I could talk to you for days. This is a wonderful book. Let's bring it up again. Let's people see this book, buy this book, read this book, buy this book, read this book. Okay. And you, you, you know, uh, you, you can see that, you know, Ali is not here. He's not shilling something. He's deeply, you know, virtu virtuously and with virtuosity invested in trying to address the meaning crisis and explore this the psychedelic renaissance as a possible viable venue for doing that. And I think he's doing it in an admirable manner. I want to thank you, Ali. And I always give my guests 
the uh, the last word. It can be summative. It can be cu- cumulative. It can be provocative. It can be prophetic, if you wish. Uh, but what what's the final word you want to leave us with? Well, first thing I just want to say thank you, John, because you know there's a, there's a reason you're you're probably one of the most quoted people in that book, and it's it's a, that the uh, the impact that your work has had on on my thinking, which I'm very grateful for. I'm grateful to be here as well. This was hugely enjoyable for me. Um, and ooh, the final word, I I'll steer <laughs> I steer away from the uh, the prophetic, but I suppose it's about. Um, I suppose what I what I uh, yes I would love if people bought or listened to the book because it's also on on Audible. But I suppose it's um, if there's one thing that I think that that ties in a lot of this, this what we've been talking about through you know dialogus practices and what I talk about in the book is this sense of deep epistemic humility and curiosity. And I think you know regardless of whether people are interested in psychedelics, you know, or or the meaning crisis, I think perhaps people are interested in the meaning crisis listening to this. But I think coming into that and deepening that and letting that take us somewhere new uh, is, is something that I think is absolutely vital right now. And so the different ways we can all contribute to that and do that and bring that into the culture as a way of being, um, I think that's a big part of the work to be done right now. So um, and we, all have, we all have some kind of con- contribution for that. So yeah, so yeah, thank you, John. It's, it's been uh, an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Ali. It's so good to talk to you again.